This is the 966, the podcast that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily newsletter on the kingdom. This week, we'll be talking about the Red Sea International Film Festival, King Salman and seven years uh, on the throne and Saudi Arabia at COP26. Uh, but before we get started this week, a special shukran to all those who have followed us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and especially for those of you who have given us a review. Um, if you haven't yet subscribed to us, wherever you can get your podcast, it doesn't cost you anything and it will deliver our content directly to you. Um, if you want to get in touch, if you have ideas, comments, feedback, um, if I mess up, send us an email at 966podcast at gmail.com or tweet us at 966podcast. And as always, negative feedback goes directly to Richard, please. Um, as well as of- checks, any checks. <laughs> For those of you who are new or just starting to follow us, we did an introduction to the podcast that is available on our podcast website, 966.transistor.fm. Let's rock, Richard. What's your one big thing this week? Um, oh, we're going with me first. All right. So we'll... Well, you want me to start? I'd be happy to start. <laughs> well, uh, yours is really interesting. Mine is interesting in large part because it's such a juxtaposition to yours. So, so let's try yours first. I- I'd be delighted to. Okay. Rivian and Al Jamil. Um, Rivian, the electric adventure vehicle company, IPO'd this week. Um, the stock began trading at $106.75 a share, giving Rivian a market valuation of, and I hope you're sitting down, $91 billion. Yes, that is more valuable than automakers Ford and GM, and Rivian, Rivian isn't even delivering their product to customers yet. So just don't ask me how the stock market works because that is totally ridiculous for a pre-revenue company with some heavy hitting competitors (laughs) who, you know, are actually earning money. One of the big winners in the EV IPO is yes, a Saudi company, Abdul Latif Jamil, a Jetta-based group named after its founder and today run by his sons, holds almost 114 million shares in Rivian, acquired through a $303 million worth of loans made to the U.S. company, according to the sale prospectus, which was uh, released last week. Um, Abdul Latif Jamil isn't the only big winner in the Rivian IPO Ford Motor Company, which currently has a market cap of $77 billion, uh, has a stake in Rivian that is worth $10 billion. And Amazon.com, Rivian's largest backer, has a stake worth $12.5 billion. This is the second EV, EV IPO that Saudi Arabia has won big on. Um, the PIF stands to record a profit of nearly $20 billion on a $2.9 billion investment in Lucid Motors Inc. and that happened earlier this year. Um, Richard, this is just, I mean, it's another whopping eye-catching IPO. Uh, yes, um, interesting because uh, you mentioned it was EV investment, but this is a private sector investment. And, and uh, Latif Jamil is a huge, is the leading Toyota dealer in the kingdom. I guess they've had a relationship with Toyota for since 1955. They have a bunch of other uh, businesses. Uh, they're apparently a really well-run firm. Uh, and their global Oryx uh, investment fund, as you said, was an, a very early uh, investor in Rivian. And I gather the current CEO, Abdul Latif Jamil, Mohammed Abdul Latif, uh, Mohammed Abdul Rahman Jamil, uh, is an MIT grad. RJ Scarridge was an MIT grad. RJ Scarridge went and sought him out via you know, professors at MIT. He went over and, and, and Rivian, apparently, this is what's so crazy about this. I mean, they've been shifting, uh, shape-shifting. It was going to be a little sports car. It was going to be a luxury sports car. It was going to be, I guess he got to know uh, uh, Muhammad uh, Al-Jamil because it was going to be a bare-bones sort of desert buster. And he went out to Saudi Arabia looking for investment. 
which is where I, you know, he met uh, the Al Jamil group and, um, and how they got in early. So it's a really interesting story. Uh, the money is insane. Uh, and it's hard to, you know, as you say, it's hard to fathom how it gets valued like that. But uh, quite, as you say, you said, you said, you know, Al Jamil is, you know, made a, a lot of money, they made a lot more money, they were already, they're already doing quite well. This was, I mean, this is very Saudi, to be honest. I mean, that 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 family, it's an international business family. They've been doing business in Europe, Asia, U.S. for decades and decades. They're good at it. Um, they have investment, you know, they have investment uh, opportunities and investment vehicles all over the world. This one, this one hit it right on, you know, good timing and will show some tremendous returns. So good on them. It's still unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and of course, you may have heard of Hassan Jamil, who uh, was dating Rihanna between 2017 and 2020. Um, so pretty lucky guy, all, all things considered. 2021 has been a good year for him. So um, well, this being this being the U.S. and the West, that's all anybody knows about. You know, of course, Jamil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, assuming you have the money to, uh, ready to plop down for a Rivian adventure vehicle, the earliest they'll be available is January 2022. Um, but, you know. But that doesn't matter for the stock market, of course. Um, exactly. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Well, this is why I wanted you to lead because my one big thing is about one of the original adventure vehicles. Um, uh, beginning December 1st, uh, Saudi Arabia will be hosting the sixth annual King Abdulaziz Camel Festival north of Riyadh. Uh, this is the world's biggest camel festival, festival with 33,000 camel owners from around the globe participating. The festival will run for 40 days and expects to average more than a thousand visits each day. Uh, participants will compete in 19 different categories with the aim of winning the grand prize of more than $66 million. Uh, in previous years, the festival, the festival has included activities such as racing, auctions, camel training, and my favorite, the best looking camel award. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with an estimated 1.4 million camels in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom has greatly expanded efforts to showcase the camels in general. Uh, this King Abdulaziz Camel Festival was started in 2015. The Saudi Camel Club was founded in 2017. Uh, in 2019, Saudi Arabia established the International Organization of Camels, the IOC, uh, a Riyadh-based nonprofit organization with over 100 member countries. Uh, and the IOC's main goal is the promotional camel heritage and the growth of camel industry globally. Um, it really, so much, it's interesting. So here you have, you have a Saudi conglomerate, you know, investing in a, in a U.S. Uh, EV IPO. Uh, and then you have uh, Saudi Arabia very consciously trying to, to promote its heritage as a, as a uh, you know, a country that has uh, significant traditions involving camels and use of camels and how intrinsic camels were to, uh, you know, Bedouin life, uh, in part, not only because it's a heritage, but also it's a, a, a tourism attraction. So uh, I thought when you said you were going to do Rivian, I thought the camel adventure vehicle would be a nice uh, partner to that. So $66 million as the grand prize. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Maybe well, I should and <laughs> Maybe I should enter myself. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm well, slow. You, you, I spit. I yeah, got you, too many humps. <laughs> yeah, you're a good-looking camel. <laughs> uh, no, it's a uh, well, and you got to be a dromedary because it mostly it's one-hump camels in Saudi Arabia. So, uh, okay, if you can pass that test, I don't know how I'm going to get rid of all my other humps. So I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to win. 
uh, but it seems like it'd be really fun to go to. Um, yes, it would. I've been to camel races. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, and it's a uh, Saudi culture on display. It just, it, this is a fascinating country. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to topic one. Uh, Red, the Red Sea International Film Festival, the inaugural Red Sea International Film Festival, um, the first ever film festival in Saudi Arabia, and it will run on uh, starting December 6th through 15th in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. The original date was in 2020, but the pandemic had other ideas. This week, the festival announced its lineup of films that it will be showing. Cyrano, I'm obviously saying it wrong, but um, Cyrano, Joe Wright's musical romantic drama starting Peter Dinklage, among others, will open the curtain on the nine-day event in, the, in Jeddah. Um, and in total, 138 feature films and shorts from 67 countries in 34 languages, including 25 world premieres. Um, and among this lineup are a slate of 27 new Saudi features from emerging local filmmakers. Um, Richard, this is huge. I mean, this is a this is a, a big deal for Saudi Arabia, a big deal for film. Um, there's a there's really a lot going on uh, in Saudi Arabia in the beginning of December, but this is a huge deal. It is a big deal, and it seems like it's been coming for a long time because they first started uh, promoting this in 2019. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it's arrived. All that anybody knows really is that uh, the Eternals will not be aired in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, or Egypt. And I think it's, uh, I think this is one of those things where Saudi Arabia, it really depends on what take you want to, you want to assume uh, and adopt with regard to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So as we know, uh, the Eternals, you know, there's a decision made by um, authorities in these countries that uh, they won't, they won't air the Eternals apparently because uh, there's a same-sex relationship portrayed and, and also um, these are uh, human beings as gods, which is problematic. Uh, so that's all anybody knows about Saudi Arabia and the cinema right now, uh, which makes this Red Sea Film Festival especially interesting because, as you said, it showcases, you know, uh, what you say, 138 films of 65 countries and 34 languages? Yeah. Um, Cyrano, Cyrano, which is based on, uh, you know, the, the it's, I guess it's a romantic comedy based on Cyrano de Bergerac, which I guess, you know, the, the, the best, uh, if you saw, if you, uh, if you saw Cyrano, if you don't know what the name was, but you know, Steve Martin was in this way back when there's been a lot of, obviously there's been a lot of versions of it. This one's supposed to be, uh, especially good. Um, you know, ongoing right now, Netflix has a deal with a number of Saudi uh, content producers. Uh, they're filming, um, you, as we talked about in our last podcast, last weekly podcast, they just closed on filming the cello, uh, which will go to cinemas. Uh, in production in Saudi Arabia is um, uh, a movie with Anthony Mackie called Desert Warrior and a movie with uh, Gerard Butler called um, Kandahar. Uh, so these are big budget movies that are gonna hit the, the screen. Uh, so Saudi Arabia's trying to move into this sector and, and make it attractive as a place to film, but also as make it a, a, a center for cinema. People forget that Saudi ended its 35-year ban on commercial theaters in December 2017. So what is that, four years ago? Not quite four years ago? 
Um, so it's, it's moving into this sector pretty rapidly um, because of its uh, religious constraints, because it's a conservative society, there'll always be hiccups and hurdles and obstacles. I don't know if they'll always be, but certainly since if we're talking about this four-year period from December, 2017, uh, there's going to be issues like the eternals. Um, so it's, it's really which, which perspective you wish to, to choose, you know, Angelina Jolie, you know, referred to this as ignorant and sad. Um, certainly in, 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 in certain circles, people look at it that way, but in Saudi Arabia, we have to remember this is the, this is the, a conservative uh, Muslim society that isn't comfortable with this yet. Uh, it's increasingly comfortable with a lot of things, as you can see, as you can see by this Red Sea Film Festival. But um, you know, baby steps, and this is actually a pretty big step. But the lineup looks really interesting, and it features a lot of Saudi uh, young artists. You know, it has a number of shorts as well as full-length feature films. Um, I'm, I think it's exciting that it's coming off. Yeah, it's really cool. They're they're going to be honoring Haifa El Mansour, um, who's a Saudi a female director who's been directing films for uh, years, including before the cinema ba cinema ban was lifted. She'll be honored at the festival this year. Uh, actually, segues wonderful wonderfully to our next topic: um, seven years of King Salman. Uh, Saudis worldwide celebrated the seventh anniversary of King Salman ascending to the throne as custodian of the two holy mosques. The uh, this is going to be a mouthful. The second youngest of the Sudairi seven, King Salman, is the seventh king of Saudi Arabia. Okay. Saudi celebrated with social media posts and congratulatory messages online. My Insta feed seemed on Monday like it was all King Salman. Um, in terms of domestic popularity, one has to say that King Salman is one of, if not the most popular rulers in the world to his subjects. Saudis love him. Um, Richard, King Salman got a start in government in the 1950s as governor of Riyadh. He's always been a powerful man and for a while was known as the royal who kept other royals in line. And uh, Richard, he's um, he's the reformer king for Saudi Arabia. He's This is Saudi Arabia. We're talking about Saudi Arabia, who are intimately familiar with their kings, as it should be. The rest of the world, and this is a sort of a particular thing for me, uh, seems to not to be paying attention to what consequential role this man has played. I think that's partly because the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is such a powerful character uh, and part of personality and, uh, you know, a lightning rod for a lot of things, good and bad. Um, uh, King Salman, when you look at the, the, the Saudi story, uh, King Salman's chapter is really interesting. And it's particularly interesting that towards the end of it, there's this unexpected, completely unanticipated twist. And, and you know, that twist um, has redirected the kingdom entirely. And I feel like, I feel like in order to give this its proper due, I should give some context. So, so let me, let me digress in a huge way, right? Just so we Please. understand, <laughs> just so we understand, and I have to organize this in my head so it, it actually comes out coherently. Um, but in order to understand the magnitude of what he did, you have to understand his history. And so let's go back. So this is the third Saudi state. 
And by that, I mean, there was a, a Saudi state that was established from 1744 uh, to 1811 when Ibrahim Pasha of the Ottoman Empire came over and, and, and this was based in Daria, basically conquered Daria, said, said scattered that Saudi state. By the way, the only time Saudi Arabia has ever been invaded by a foreign power. So that's 1811. It was sort of reconstituted in 1825 by, um, uh, but in the seat of power is, is now in Riyadh, which is like 20 miles north of Daria. And this, this version of the Saudi state was um, in existence till 1891. There were warring tribes and that sort of thing. And in 1891, it was, it was exiled essentially by the Al-Rashid clan group of, of tribes. And so they sent off, they first went to Qatar and Bahrain, and then they were essentially refugees in Kuwait. And uh, this was uh, Abdurrahman al Saud was the head of the family at that time. His son, 15 years old at the time, Abdulaziz uh, Ibn Saud. Abdulaziz uh, bin Abdurrahman al Saud is known as Ibn Saud, uh, sort of desert warrior father of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Went out into the, you know, in, 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 on raids in 19, late 1901, early 1902, um, and decided even against his father's wishes to make a run uh, and go try and retake uh, Riyadh. So he and 40 of his best friends uh, in January 1902, you know, snuck up on Riyadh, used, um, palm trees to climb the parapets and the walls, and they retook Riyadh, 1902. So uh, over the course of, and, 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 and uh, Ibn Saud um, was a kind of a swashbuckling guy, six foot four, charismatic, courageous, uh, turned out to be a really astute politician. So this is 1902. So over the course of the next 30 years, he, he uh, consolidates Saudi Arabia, and he pulls it all together. And, uh, you know, he, he raises uh, 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 the Ikhwan, the white army, which is, you know, fervent Muslim believers who were a big part of his expansion. He quashes the Ikhwan when they can't, you know, they don't, won't abide by treaties and just want to keep raiding. Uh, he intermarries, he, he, does, he brings the country together. He is for Saudis, he is George Washington on steroids. Uh, it just really a, a important and influential and, and, a, and a, a touchstone for Saudis. Um, so he, he unifies the country in 1932. He rules till 1953. He has 45 sons, roughly. I think 36 who live to adulthood. And like any, any group of, and, and we're talking about sons, he had many other kids, but remember this is a patriarchal mm -hmm. tribal society. So, so, you know, males at the time were what mattered um, in terms of leadership. Um, 36 sons who grew to adulthood, like any family, some were good, some were not so great in, in terms of being effective uh, uh, business people, government officials and so on and so forth. Um, Salman is, is, was born in, uh, 35, I believe. December 31st, as they always happen to, to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, he was one of the Suderi Seven. Now, Suderi Seven was, uh, and this will come back later, 
uh, were seven full brothers of one of uh, Ibn Saud's favorite wives. And these, in terms of family dynamics, you know, full brothers, and these were, these were a group that moved through together. But uh, Salman himself was a really interesting guy. He became uh, governor of the Riyadh uh, Emirate when he was 19. So this was 1955. And he uh, remained the governor of the Emirate and, the, and uh, for over five decades. So he, he, he was head of the, you know, he was governor of the Riyadh Emirate from 55 to 2011. So he took it from when Riyadh was under 200,000 people to when it was over 5 million people. Um, and I think probably a lot of what he learned about governance, about real problems and that sort of thing, it's sort of like in the U.S., it'd be the difference between, uh, you know, a governor of a state and a, and a uh, U.S. senator. One deals with real problems, the other deals with uh, hot air. Uh, so, <laughs> to, put, to put it nicely. Yeah, to put it nicely. Uh, but on top of that, this is, this is a guy who was... Um, uh, well-read, thoughtful, uh, very conscientious, show up early in the morning, uh, widely seen as uh, not corrupt, you know, clean, and uh, was really well-regarded within the family. And as you say, he was sort of the, the, um, the gendarme of the family in many ways, in terms of if, if, if a prince was getting out of line, someone was getting in line, he had, he, there was actually some, some cells inside the emirate the palace there where he would have them cool their heels for a while. So this is an extremely well-regarded senior prince. Um, and as, as leadership evolved, what you found, you know, you have to, you know, so you have all these brothers, you have these power centers, you have the Royal, Royal power centers, you had uh, institutional power centers and the way Saudi Arabia managed itself uh, it's just like tribes, you know, a tribe would have managed itself in the sense that it was, it was very much consensus oriented. So you had, so for example, King Fahad, who ruled from 82 to 2005, uh, has said the only time he took a decision, a major decision that wasn't a completely unanimous one, was, to, was when uh, the question came is whether they should allow U.S. troops into the country after Iraq evaded. Kuwait in 91. And he said, that's the only time it was not 100% consensus. And my, you know, obviously the reason was, was that the threat, uh, um, the time was too short. Uh, the threat was too great. And um, the traditional nice, you didn't have time for traditional niceties. So, so in US troops came and obviously we know what happened. But that, that explains the consensus. And so over time, you had power centers evolve. And so, for example, you had uh, a ministry power. The Ministry, ministry of Interior was a significant power center. And so one of the Sudari brothers, Naif uh, Al Saud, uh, was, was there. The Ministry of Defense, a major power center, Sultan uh, Al Saud uh, was there. Um, Saudi Arabian National Guard, uh, Abdullah Al Saud, who wasn't a Sudari, but was a half brother, obviously. Uh, the Royal Court, obviously. Um, Salman and the Riyadh Emirate was a power center. 
The other power centers, so the Ministry of Finance, typically that was headed by uh, a non-Saudi up until just recently with Abdulaziz, uh, bin Salman, the, the Ministry of Energy, Petroleum, was headed by a commoner. So what you had was uh, a governing system that was extremely uh, consensus-oriented and spread out among a number of power centers. You could even call them smokestacks because, you know, they, a lot of times one didn't know what the other was doing, but they all got their share. They were all well-funded and decisions were made primarily by consensus. So Salman becomes uh, Minister of Defense in 2011, Crown Prince in 2012. He uh, is named, uh, he is appointed king ascends to the to 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 being king um, in January 2015. And he looks around. He's 80 years old at the time. 80 years old. He is the ultimate insider. He is the quintessential established guy. He's the bluest of blue bloods. I mean his DNA, if you want to argue, goes all the way back to 1744 to the first Saudi state. I mean, where the Sauds have ruled, and this is how they rule. And he decides that he needs to change everything. It's stunning. I mean, within, within 30 months, uh, these diverse power centers have been eliminated and they've been moved aside. The, the, uh, the clerical class has started to be backed down. Um, the levers of power are increasingly uh, concentrated in uh, the royal court and also the committee for economic uh, uh, um, and developmental affairs and this this multipolar world which has always been the case in saudi arabia in terms of governance now is becoming unipolar and on top of that again within these 30 months this relative unknown crown prince mohammed bin salman is moved to the forefront with his hands on those levers so you, in 30 months you move from a, a, a multipolar world with many many cooks in the kitchen um, to an entirely different reality and and although we all focus on uh, mohammed bin salman None of this happens with, without King Salman. Uh, this is, he, 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 my theory is, and we've talked about this, my theory is that he came uh, to be king after, with a plan. And I think he had been thinking about this a long time, intimately aware of how decisions were made, intimately aware of how, how long it took to make decisions, and he assessed the field. I mean, we've talked about November 2014. We've talked about that OPEC meeting when Saudi Arabia had to stare into the face of um, declining oil price and accelerating U.S. shale oil production. And when we talked about it in 2008, it was under 4 million barrels per day. And by 2014, it was over eight on its way to 11 million barrels per day. Um, so I think there were three things that he looked at and said, all right, what I see is our typical revenue model doesn't work anymore. 
That's one. Two, uh, we have a demographic time bomb uh, in terms of our youth. Uh, the, our largest employer by you know a vast amount is the government, which government which is already bloated, and we can't can't employ these these kids. We have to uh, rethink our economy in order to find a way to employ these kids, to house these kids, to entertain these kids. And three, uh, we have to remember that, that the Arab Spring was in 2011. So this is roughly three years before this happened, before he, he came to the throne. And the message out of that was sort of two part. One, uh, whatever the nature of your regime, what we're interested in is better governance. And oh, by the way, with social media, we're gonna know all about how good or bad your governance is. And we're gonna be able to mobilize. I mean, the story is told that when, you know, Iraq invaded Kuwait, the Saudi, the Saudi press didn't announce, didn't cover it until three days later. I mean, you could have that float time in 1991. In 2011, 2014, 15, it's real. And not only is it real and immediate, it's a it's an agent for change. So if you're not governing well, everybody knows it, and you know social media can organize complaints and and you know opposition. So I think he's looking at you know in 2015 January 2015 he's looking the same thing that King Todd in 91. He said you know the time is too short, threat is too great, we don't have time for traditional niceties, and. So he, he, as I said, he accomplishes the, this, you know, this complete redirection in roughly 30 months. And if, if you, anybody could have called that or did call that, uh, they need to go to Vegas right now and, and make some bets because the odds on that happening for, again, like I said, an 80 year old guy with his pedigree to assess the situation and go, we need to do everything different is stunning. And I don't think he gets nearly enough credit. And, and, and as you say, he's beloved in Saudi Arabia. Um, but we have to remember too, that, that you know, the phenomenon of Mohammed bin Salman does not happen with King Salman. The direction of Saudi Arabia today does not happen with King Salman. And, and it's really curious about, you know, why Mohammed bin Salman? And remember, this, this is the king makes this decision. And because and Mohammed Salman, bin Salman, as we know, uh, is, you know, a lightning rod in, in for, for a number of things. But why Mohammed bin Salman? And, and I think King Salman made this decision very, you know, a lot of thought went into this. He had other options. When, when he was made king, his crown prince was Mukrin, which is his, his brother, the youngest uh, living son of Ibn Saud. He, he moved him aside. Uh, Muhammad bin Naif was went in, in for a little bit, who's uh, his nephew and you know, son of his, his full brother. Um, he moved him aside for Muhammad bin Salman. Why? Uh, I think because uh, Mohammed bin Salman began working with King Salman, uh, I think in about 2009, had stayed close, had earned his trust. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is widely seen as a bright guy, a hardworking guy, um, and a good Muslim, which matters. 
um, in terms of uh, our Saudis leaders. Uh, but on top of that, you know, if King Salman assessed that our biggest challenge is economic, you know, our revenue model is broken, social, our kids aren't, aren't we, our kids don't have a future. Um, and this is what we need to focus on. Mohammed bin Salman makes sense. I mean, because first of all, I think he was with King Salman as, as these things germinated in the king's mind. Uh, second of all, I think Mohammed bin Salman is a, is a true believer and is in 2030. I mean, he believes this to his core. He thinks this is the way, only way forward for Saudi Arabia. Um, as I said, he's a, you know, he's a persistent, committed, hardworking guy. Uh, and let's face it, he's, he's a bit of a bulldozer. Uh, and, and I think when King Salman looks at what he needed, what, the king, what he thought the kingdom needed was exactly this. And I think uh, when, when people lament, and there's plenty of people who lament and criticize Saudi Arabia and they go, okay, what's happened to this multipolar world? You know, we don't have the, the seasoned guys around. We don't have consensus. We don't have deliberation. And, the, and, we, and we, we see, you know, things that are out of character, like, you know, that a rash acts in foreign policy or this sort of thing. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not debating that one way or another. I'm just thinking that King Salman looks at it and goes, okay, maybe I see that too. But my, the primary objective, what I think really needs happened, MBS is uniquely well-suited for um, so anyway, uh, that's a long digression of why I find King Salman so interesting is because he just flipped the script and, and went in a completely different direction that is going to define Saudi Arabia, good or bad for the next generation. And it's like you said, I mean, you know, what, 30 months he turned the kingdom. Um, it's a, you know, gigantic oil tanker, if you will. Um, yeah. it takes a long time to turn those things. He made it turn like a Bugatti and it's not just the way that he did it, but it's the direction in which he pointed it. And it's, it, it's sort of like amazing if you think about how ambitious everything he's done is, and, and you definitely touched on it, but it's like corruption crackdown, like trying to develop their own military industries. There's just, you could go blue in the face discussing all the different things that he's changed, but what he's actually changed is the whole system itself and how it works and where it's pointing. And that's yes. going to be his legacy. I think in addition to his son, um, who is now basically the successor of the heir, um, it, it's, a, it's his legacy is already cemented and he's in his seventh year. And that's, I think why Saudis were, tremendously proud of this moment because they realized they're on the right track. And, and, and I think a lot of people would say that about Saudi Arabia right now. Well, they're on, they're on a track with a chance. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, again, we talk about it as an experiment. We don't know the outcome, but this one ups the odds of succeeding because the current, the previous one that he assumed when he, he came to be monarch, he aimed to be King was not going to work. And he had the courage and the, and the foresight to act quickly to change it, even though, like I said, every, every cell in his body was trained to do otherwise. It's amazing. So congratulations to Saudis who celebrated that this week. Yeah, happy seventh anniversary, King Salman. <laughs> Speaking of turning the oil tanker in a different direction, let's move on <laughs> to topic three. Uh, Saudi Arabia at COP26, extremely busy week in global diplomacy and a pivotal week for the climate. 
Richard, uh, OPEC plus countries, including Saudi Arabia, are defending a future role for fossil fuels at COP26. Saudi Arabia's uh, Minister of Energy, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said, quote, it is imperative that we recognize the diversity of climate solutions and the importance of emissions without any bias toward or against any particular source of energy. He also said, quote, we should use all energy resources as long as we congregate around mitigation. Uh, things are getting a little testy in Glasgow. Saudi Arabia was accused of obstructing the progress of negotiations towards a strong deal at the conference, including by using procedural delay tactics, which Prince Abdelaziz denied. He said, what, you are, what you've been hearing is a false allegation, a cheat, and a lie. Um, Richard, Saudi Arabia is serious about fighting climate change. They will be bearing the brunt of, any, of many climate disasters in the future as temperatures rise faster in the Middle East than in other places, and they've pledged $187 billion into climate action this decade. Um, we've talked a little bit about COP26 climate change as it, as it, uh, with respect to Saudi Arabia, but this is a huge week for the, for the future of global energy, the energy transition, and for Saudi Arabia's role in it. Yeah, uh, Saudi's got an act, doesn't it, Saudi Arabia? I mean, we often say that, you know, things are going best with Saudi Arabia if they're not on the front page. They cannot stay off the front page sometimes. And, um, you know, in the run-up, we, we talked about it in last week's weekly episode, uh, in the run-up to COP26, you know, they came out with some some net zero goals, uh, and which was encouraging. They certainly have been seen as much more participatory in, in the, the net zero and the uh, global energy conversion questions. Uh, COP26, like you say, they, there's been some controversy. Uh, they've been accused of slow rolling things, diverting things. Um, I think we won't know until what, you know, we won't know, uh, you know, until we're done. And we're sort of at the end of the COP26. So it's a little premature to look at it, but, uh, it you know looking at COP26. Well, one one big thing that came out of it uh, in, in the draft, and there's only 84 lines in the draft, but in the draft statement, uh, which has not been finalized, they specifically referenced the need to you know eliminate coal and eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. It's the first time it's ever been mentioned in a in a in a COP uh, forum, so that's new. Um, looking at this. Uh, I, I think uh, we could use a whole bunch of metaphors. I mean, if you're glass, what type of person? You're glass full, glass uh, half empty, glass half full, glass half empty, you know? I look at this as this is like January 2. You know, if you've done New Year's resolutions in January 1, on January 2, you actually have to go to the consider, gym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, because there are good things that have come out of this. I mean, it's some of the things that, that, that there's... Um, the net zero commitment, remember, net zero commitments were sort of a fringe idea five years ago, and now they're widely accepted. Now, 90% of the global economy, 90% of global carbon emissions, countries that, you know, that these countries that, you know, are responsible for this percentage of the economy and global carbon emissions have committed to net zero goals. Five years ago, five trillion in assets was was sort of covered by these goals. Uh, now it's 130 trillion in assets. Um, you know, we have net zero commitments from India, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria. Uh, it, it, it's a different conversation. Clearly, it's a different conversation. 
but the devil's in the details. Um, and you have you know you, things like the methane agreement, which is quite encouraging. I mean, it's methane is the large, second largest, uh, signed by more than 100 countries, second largest contributor to global warming, but the top three methane uh, emitters didn't sign it. Um, you know, the, the afforestation agreement that, you know, on land use, that's very exciting and, and encouraging. And that probably has the best chance of, of being fully um, realized at this moment. Uh, but uh, all these goals, you know, there's nothing, uh, very few of these goals are actually enshrined in law. These are all, they're trying to change goals to resolutions to try and give a little more meat to it. Um, it doesn't necessarily, these as, as currently situated, these, these, these net zero commitments wouldn't get us to 1.5, uh, a 1.5 degree level uh, Celsius that, 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 the, that the goal is. So, you know, I think what's going to come out of this is they, they did say, all right, we want, we want new commitments. We, we get, we're going to send our deadline to, I think, 2022 for uh, updated, new, stronger commitments. And, and hopefully, you know, that'll come out of it. Saudi Arabia, the conundrum for Saudi Arabia is the same as it was going in. Uh, how do we bridge uh, to uh, a different economy, you know, while still producing uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and also on top of that, so much of what they're trying, what they claim they want to do and what they have set out to do is based on technologies that are, are still new and, and not proven to be scalable. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll master these technologies and, and turn around and, and make it a, a, you know, a whole new economy based on these. But that's yet to be determined, like so much coming out of COP26. Did you look at how well this all of this syncs up with Vision 2030, which is all just it's all about getting the Saudi economy away from oil as the primary source or the only source of revenue for the government? It's like Saudi Arabia sort of knows that the future is, you know, not the 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 present. It's not producing oil as we were letting the market determine the price and then everybody use as much oil as you can because it's just the easiest way to to power our cars to do anything. It's like Saudi Saudi Arabia was a little bit ahead of this. We talked about this last week. We sort of discussed about how this was a bit of a pivot. The green initiative was a bit of a pivot for Saudi Arabia to say, okay, look, this this is you know sort of tied into Vision Twenty Thirty, but this isn't about money. This is about sort of the future of of what's going to happen. I mean, it, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman said earlier this year that Saudi Arabia would be pumping every last drop of oil um, and and putting it out there. So I think it's. Um, you know, it's interesting because the Saudi perspective, the oil producing nations perspective here is we got to get to, we've got to work our way toward a different world. And we're doing our part, not just in energy, we're investing in EVs, we're developing new ways to get energy out of hydrogen. We are building our own solar and wind farms, and we're doing all of these things here. But, you know, we're, we've got to, you can't just write out oil as, as part of any, you know, any solution in the next few years, especially because it's like, well, you know, we're just gonna have energy crisis after energy crisis. So I think it's really interesting that they're, they're bringing a perspective to this, which is like, okay, look, we are big producers of oil, we know that. And um, we also know that because we are trying to make it so that our economy is not completely dependent on this. But, you know, we also understand the stakes are high here. I mean, look at our, look at the temperature in Mecca this summer hit 150 degrees. And it's like, <laughs> they, they, they know, I mean, they know. And so 
it, this is a, I've been fascinated with this the last few days, kind of watching, keeping up with the coverage, watching it on, online and on news channels. Cause it's just like, this is the, this is the big show. This is a big deal. I have to say this cop 26 has been must see TV, which is either commentary on our dorkiness <laughs> or, or I don't know what it is because it has been fascinating. And, and Saudi Arabia, as I referenced, you know, uh, November 2014, I think Saudi Arabia saw its future then and they knew that the model wasn't working. And I think when 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 the energy minister talks about pumping the last molecule of oil, I, I think they know better. Uh, they're never going to get to the last molecule of oil. One of the, right now, it's a race. You know, it's interesting that there's a race, climate change, it's a race. And, and a big thing coming out of COP26 was, all right, we have to stop this next decade is the pivot. You know, we can't, we can't be hemming and hawing. We have to step up. We have to make hard decisions. We have to abide by them. And that's their point. So, you know, we, we, this, this, this window is a lot shorter. You know, we have 2070, 2060, and 2050, uh, you know, goals for various countries, but this next decade is the pivotal thing. Mm -hmm. um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Prince Abdulaziz will say, you know, we'll up in last monocle, but, but they, Saudi Arabia knows they're going to have billions, maybe trillions of dollars of stranded assets where they're going to leave oil in the ground, either because, because the, the global market has left them behind, there's no demand, or preferably Saudi Arabia has moved proactively to alternate visions and alternate sources of energy and alternate sources of revenue. Again, so their race is this next decade too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking about these technologies about carbon, you know, carbon capture, but also, you know, um, hydrogen and renewable energy. Uh, you know, they see hydrogen as a, as, as a great potential for revenue down the road, because that's a transport fuel as well, like, like oil. Um, so the race is on. Um, uh, the Saudis, uh, the Saudis will say one thing, but they know the score and they know, uh, they know that they have to make this next decade really productive and transformative. Uh, and they have to maximize whatever fossil fuel revenue is coming over the next, and, and, and it will be coming for you know, more than a decade, but uh, we don't know. I mean, 2040, uh, who knows? Uh, you know, timelines go out to 2045, but uh, the, the race is on. Saudis know it better than anybody, like you say. Yeah, and I think I think that's what makes it must watch TV is it's like we're, we're sort of seeing in front of our eyes a chance for like all of the world leaders to almost all of the world leaders to basically come together and agree on something. And that Saudi Arabia's like buy into that agreement is so pivotal. It's sort of like, is it going to happen? Like, like you're sort of like waiting for this big buildup. And it's just it's fascinating or not. And this is what I mean. Saudi Arabia can't get out of the spotlight. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked to our very opening podcast our vote open was a discussion of why saudi matters you know it's a country far far away from the u.s but it seems to get in the mix on everything and and here it is cop 26 you know perhaps you know the most consequential climate event in you know since the paris agreement and probably bigger than that because time is short uh and saudi arabia is right in the middle of everything uh, good, for good or bad i mean it's caught a lot of criticism uh, but it, it's it's trying to make its own way. Like every country uh, at this event, at this gathering, is trying to make their own way. It's just it seems that Saudi Arabia is on the front page. That should do it. <laughs> um, 
Well, stay tuned. Hopefully we're doing COP26 next week as well because there's something awesome that comes out of it. Um, Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Uh, you can get this podcast anywhere you get podcasts, um, but if you get a chance, we would really appreciate it if you wrote a review, especially a glowing review. Um, anywhere you get it, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, um, hit the subscribe button, just gets the podcast delivered to your feed or to your device so you don't have to download it uh, automatically. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian.